0: This is Thinking in
1: Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Grant Wacker is the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor of Christian History at Duke Divinity School. He specializes in the history of evangelicalism, Pentecostalism, world missions, and American Protestant thought. A Ph.D. graduate of Harvard University, he's the author and co-editor of several books, including Heaven Below, Early Pentecostals in American Culture. His most recent book is America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Grant Wacker, welcome to Thinking in Public. Grant, you begin this work on Billy Graham with a very personal anecdote, suggesting that both of you, in one sense, had descended on New York City in the same time in 1957. How did that come about? Well, my
0: parents were uh, vacationing in New York, and I grew up, or they came from a uh, small town in Southwest Missouri. So this was a, a very big deal for us. And then uh, this was about uh, halfway through uh, his crusade, and so this was a major event, and, uh, and I still remember it because it was the first time I was in a ever in a a meeting of that size, and, and of course I remember
1: Graham what a spectacular, charismatic figure he was. I would think that would have to have an impact on a 12-year-old boy who was probably rather overwhelmed by the city of New York in the first place. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, uh, yeah, sure. just following through your book, I, I had a thought, looking back to the 12-year-old Grant Wacker, wondering uh, w- when you heard Billy Graham preach, did you have the impression that you were at some kind of, uh, of ground zero of history, some kind of intersection of... Uh, of of an american moment and uh... what you might later call an evangelical moment as well
0: uh... the answer to all those questions is decidedly no uh... i was twelve years old and uh... all i can remember is just how big it was and yeah. uh... you know the crowds and but i do remember uh... how funny he was and the uh... uh... the the uh, laughter and i remember one joke he told after all these years uh... he told the joke uh... he said uh... uh... uh, uh puppy love Uh, It's not very uh, important to parents, but it's extremely real to the puppy. Um, And there was just gales of laughter. But, I mean, that was characteristic of his preaching throughout his life, that he knew how to uh, use uh, down-home humor uh, to capture people's attention.
1: Well, the historian who wrote this book was once the boy who was in that stadium. And and what did strike me, I have to say, and, and I come a few years after you in this chronology, is that I think there will be very few 12-year-olds in any evangelical uh, culture in the future here in the United States who will know anything like that cultural moment, including what you uh, just even apprehended as a 12-year-old in terms of bigness. I, I, I don't think there's going to be anything like that for another 12-year-old in uh, in our day to experience. Right. No, I agree. I agree. There's yeah. a line I, I did not use in the book, uh, but...
0: Uh um, might well have. And from uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, in American life, there are no second acts. And I think that's true, uh, the whole Billy Graham phenomenon. I I can't imagine yeah. um, any, any successor in that way, yeah.
1: Well, when I looked at your new book entitled America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation, uh, I fully expected it. it would be a riveting tale. And uh, you deliver on that, I, I'm glad oh, to thank say. you. Thank you. But uh, I, I also think your mm-hmm. book raises some of the most important issues for evangelical thinking today, and uh, I know that's uh, certainly part of your of your agenda in writing the book as well. But let me ask the most obvious question of all: How, in the uh, early decades of the 21st century, did you come to spend so much of your life and scholarly investment uh, looking into Billy Graham and the meaning of the man and his ministry?
0: Well, the answer is really uh, very simple and not very profound. I had spent uh, uh, years working on another project on uh, early Pentecostalism, and I was finished with it. And then a friend, uh, Mark Knoll, who's a very distinguished Evangelical historian, um, uh, suggested that I needed uh, another project, and he said, you want to tell a big story, um, was, and now coming to the end of my teaching career, and so I said, what well, would be a big story? And he said, uh, uh, "Story of the uh, intersection between Billy Graham and the rest of American life." So there are uh, many, many biographies of Graham, and uh, lots of studies of aspects of his life. But I didn't think that there was any study that probed uh, Billy Graham as a broad cultural figure. And so that's what that's what I tried to do. So it's not really a biography as such. It's it, it's an attempt to understand how Graham opens a window in um, wider currents
1: of of American life. I was uh, very much drawn in by your introduction even before I read the, the remainder of the book. And uh, it, it seems to me that the thesis statement in many ways for what you're about is found on page 28 of the book when you write, from first to last, Graham, that is Billy Graham, displayed an uncanny ability to adopt trends in the wider culture, and then use them for his evangelistic and moral reform purposes. In one sense, it seems to me that everything that follows really flows from that thesis. That's exactly right. You're
0: you're very perceptive. I mean, you've, you've got it nailed. Uh, that's the argument. And it's not original to me. Uh, uh, well, I, th- I think it's original with reference to Billy Graham, uh, at least the way I put it. Uh, but I, I draw the notion from um, uh, Richard Bushman's great book on Joseph Smith and the beginning of the Mormons, and he argues that that's exactly what Joseph Smith did. He, he drew upon r- larger currents, and then he applied them. And I thought that's what Graham was doing when I started to look at the evidence. Um, it's, it's important to say, though, Al, uh, I don't think he did that very intentionally. Uh, in some cases it was intentional, but uh, more often than not it was, it was instinctive. Uh He had a sense of what was going on and a sense of what he needed to do um uh, and actually, one of his closest associates once said to me, "Billy did his best his best work on the backstroke mm-hmm. uh and I think that's exactly what happened.
1: Well, I think it's important up front uh, just to uh, to state that uh, even as you identify yourself writing in your prologue, uh, and I quote you back to yourself, as for point of view, I count myself a partisan of the same evangelical tradition Graham represented, especially you wrote the ironic, inclusive, pragmatic form of it so that he came to symbolize in the later years of his public ministry. You said that yeah. identification comes from my upbringing and from adult choice. I speak from from a very similar position, but... Also, is one uh, who uh, whose adult ministry has been very much uh, marked by intersections with Doctor Graham. He spoke at my inauguration in this office. Oh. He's been a dear friend for many years. I served as chairman of the Crusade here in Louisville, Kentucky, and yeah. uh, uh, at, at so many points, uh, especially in my uh, my role here at Southern Seminary, he has played uh, uh, more than. Uh, more than an off-screen part, and uh, for yeah. that I am just incredibly indebted, and also for just coming to know him over the process of 30 yeah. years. And yeah. uh, I, I would just have to say, I, I would think it to be especially for a professor at Duke University writing a book that would eventually be published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University. I can imagine that this book could have gone in any number of different directions. Why did it go in the direction that it did in terms of how you organized the book and, and how you consider Billy Graham? Well those are great questions.
0: I uh, began with the idea that I would write a straightforward narrative biography uh, looking at the broader currents of American life, Uh, but uh, I soon came to the conclusion that I could not do a better job on biography than Bill Martin already has done in his book, A Prophet with Honor. And uh, every biography is different, but I did not want to spend uh, years just trying to come up with a, a new angle. And that was also because it struck me that there were aspects of Graham's career that Bill had not explored very deeply, and I want to stress that his book is is just the best there is in terms of, of a biography, uh, but I wanted to delve uh, certain kinds of aspects uh, Graham's preaching style, um, and the way he gave the 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 call at the end, uh, which was so dramatic and uh, was so effective. And those are the kinds of things that I thought required uh, uh, extra attention. In terms of, uh, uh, I'll go back to your own comments about your own personal relationship with Graham, uh, is that I found myself uh, drawn in. I started uh, with a sympathetic attitude, uh, and as it progressed, as the work progressed, uh, sympathy turned to admiration. Now, I'm I'm not uncritical. Uh, Graham, like all great people, made mistakes, and some of them were serious. Um, but um, uh, the, the, uh, the, my, the overall uh, result of his career is one that I think any Christian would,
1: would have to admire. You know, that kind of uh, points uh, to rather directly to my predicament, uh, even in this conversation. I'm the president of a seminary that has the only graduate school that bears the name of Billy Graham. And oh, okay. uh, <clears throat> I, I, I want to confess, uh, and, uh, and not reluctantly, uh, that he has been incredibly helpful to me. And especially wow. in the early years that I came here was directly helpful in ways that uh, actually intersect with so many of the things in your book. But I would also have to say that even as I, I had the opportunity to visit with him uh, in the, uh, the, the, the what are certainly the latter uh, years of his life, uh, I, I would say that I wouldn't be able to have this conversation. And uh, I wouldn't feel morally at ease having this conversation if I didn't believe that Billy Graham would be the very first to say, I've made mistakes and I want the story told exactly as it should be told.
0: Right. Um, he he said that to uh, Bill Martin when Bill Martin started the uh, major biography. Now, uh, Martin's biography is not an authorized one, but... Uh, uh, i 'll speak of Graham in the past tense if i may uh he's He's alive and uh, well, but uh, his ministry is is past um, so uh Graham used those exact words with Bill martin he said, "I want you to uh, uh, tell the mistakes that I made um, because uh it's important for younger evangelists to know what to avoid uh, and then i I think he also said that uh simply because he's a very humble man and uh, uh, and he would, he would feel it's necessary to talk about his mistakes. But beyond that, uh, he wanted others to see uh, the perils that he had fallen into, and he wanted them to avoid it.
1: Especially in your chapters entitled Entrepreneur and Architect, uh, especially in those chapters, I, I felt very much the tension in the very issue you're talking about because mm-hmm. I, too, want to affirm uh, that Dr. Graham is, is an incredibly humble man. Uh, yeah. seemingly at times baffled, uh, in retrospect, by the opportunities uh, that he has known in ministry. At the same time, and you document this so well, he posed for the cover of uh, well, an untold number of national magazines, including <laughs> yeah. several times' uh-huh. time and, and and all the rest, yeah. and uh, had this enormous edifice of public relations and, and, and all the rest. And uh, I, I honestly think that as you uh, identified... Uh, your thesis, so to speak, in, in that sentence that I read, he really believed that all these things were in service to a larger cause, uh, which was his evangelistic ministry. Right, and and not far behind that was
0: uh, his his desire uh, to bring moral reform uh, to the nation. Uh, he was always clear that the evangelistic ministry was primary, uh, but these these other parts uh, were you know, important to him too. Um, I I would say that the um, main problem and main argument I advance in the book is exactly what you say, and that is uh, to look at how he uh, used the trends of the time uh, to his own purposes. Um, but there's another um, uh, stream that runs through the book, and I've only actually come to see this after I wrote it, and, and that is the recurrent tension uh, between uh, professional ambition and personal humility. Uh, he was an enormously ambitious man. He had uh, great visions for what could be done and what he was called to do, Um, but all of that was coupled with uh, deep personal humility, and that's, uh, I I use the word tension, but I think that is probably not right. Uh, It's a kind of invigorating uh, distinction in his life.
1: So I was born in the year 1959. There never was a moment in my own Southern Baptist or evangelical Mm -hmm. self-awareness in which Billy Graham wasn't a part of the landscape. I can still remember walking into my grandmother's house, uh, my mother's uh, mother's uh, house, and my grandmother and grandfather had uh, there in the the back porch of the house, which uh, where everybody gathered, there was a constant flow of material from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and uh, and, Mm -hmm. and life came to a stop when uh, Billy Graham was doing anything on television. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. The, the, there was the immediate sense that he was speaking for all of us uh, yeah. in, a, in a sense yeah. that no one else in America could and, and I really appreciate the way you tell that story going back to the very beginnings of, of, of Dr. Graham's life and ministry and, and in particular how you point to that New York crusade as a crucial turning point in so many of these issues and just in terms of, of thinking about where evangelicalism is today and, and couldn't otherwise be except for Billy Graham I think one of the tension points is I uh, I think we all want to judge decisions and actions taken in the past by what we know now. But, of course, the, the, that's a conceit. Uh, he did not know how, uh, sure. how all these things would unfold. But take us back to New York in particular, not so much to Los Angeles, but take us back to New York when he's having to make major decisions that will reshape the evangelical movement for many years to come. Yeah. Well, all right. Let
0: me uh, come at that from the side, and that I do think the, the single most important event in his life was the Los Angeles Crusade in 1949, because that's the crusade that catapulted him into uh, public visibility. If that had not taken place, I don't know. Uh, how the rest of his career uh, would have unfolded. And what was crucial in the Los Angeles Crusade and then played out again in New York uh, is his intersection with the two great journalists of the age, uh, William Randolph Hearst and uh, Henry Luce. Uh, and when they came together uh, to uh, focus on his career, uh, then uh, his whole story changed. Um, well, actually, he didn't meet Lewis at that time, but, but very soon thereafter. Uh, but in New York was another important uh, turning point, and for, another re- for a variety of reasons. Uh, one was the sheer magnitude of it. Uh, he never again uh, had a crusade uh, that lasted as long or that physically depleted him, uh, as this one did. And uh, he, he would say that ever after uh, 1957, he, had ne- he never physically quite recovered uh, from the, uh, the the immense drain uh, upon him personally, uh, he was so invested, you know, in, the, in this enterprise. Um, it lasted 16 weeks. Uh, the media coverage was unprecedented in uh, evangelical circles and any kind of religious circles, and I think probably it, it remains unique. Uh, I can't think of anything that ever took place after 1957
1: that was comparable. Well, having read uh, everything I yeah, could get a yeah. hold of uh, in yeah. terms of those two big events, and I certainly agree with you, without Los Angeles there wouldn't have been New York. Uh, as, as one is trying to think through so many of the current issues facing evangelicalism, New York does, I have to tell you, loom very large yeah. uh, in my view, because there he's having to make huge decisions uh, that will uh, set the trajectory for his ministry and in some ways uh, for uh, a mainstream evangelicalism. Uh, in, right. in terms of uh, who will be on the platform, uh, how will he present this, how will he engage the larger culture in Gotham, uh, there in New yeah, York yeah. City. And and I think in terms, of not just uh, one or two of your chapters, but throughout your book, you really are getting at what, what happened then and and then what followed. Yes. Um, there are several events that uh, transpired
0: in the course of the crusade in New York that are uh, uh, representative of, of what would mark his crusade for the well, his his whole entire ministry, and uh, the first of those is that he made a, a very intentional uh, move toward inclusivism. Uh, he determined that he would work with uh, almost anyone who would work with him. There are a few boundaries there, but for all practical purposes, he said, if if they do not ask me to change my message or style or way I do things, uh, we'll work together. And so um, he, uh, he he reached out most conspicuously uh, to the Protestant mainline, and they reached back to him. Um, there was also uh, some support from the Roman Catholic community. It wasn't as significant as the mainline, but it, it certainly was there. Um, and there is some evidence uh, even that he received some support from uh, uh, Jews. And of course, the Jews in, in New York would not, support uh, the, uh, the Christian part of the message, but they supported, uh, presumably, they, they supported his call for uh, moral integrity. Um, and, and so then he, he's reaching out to people all around him. Now, what happened on the other side of that endeavor is that he permanently alienated uh, people who came to be called fundamentalists. And my argument, Al, is that we really don't have a clear fundamentalist movement until 1957. Mm. And uh, they came into existence, in effect, as a, a, a body of Christians who, who galvanized, crystallized, uh, because they did not want to cooperate with Graham's inclusiveness.
1: So I came into uh, my own evangelical sense of identity as a young Southern Baptist who, uh, who was relatively unaware of a, of a lot of these stresses and strains, and, and certainly right. unaware of the strategic decisions made by Billy Graham. But uh, when I came uh, to, uh, to my college experience, and when I was even in high school, I had independent fundamentalist uh, friends, and uh, they didn't like Billy Graham. And, right. uh, and yet they had begrudging respect for him, I also have to point out. And, right. uh, and, sure. and then I've kind of lived my life uh, within this massive transformation in the Southern Baptist Convention, and, uh, and and Dr. Graham, uh, more than is documented in your book, played a rather significant part in that in in, in ways that uh, that might surprise uh, even you, having written this book. And uh, so, I, I the theologian in me, uh, I'll, I'll admit, has a great deal of difficulty imagining how Billy Graham in 1957 could have included some of the people he included right. uh, on that platform. And, and I have to tell you, uh, Grant, just speaking as honestly as I can, I find myself. Uh, at many points wondering if Dr. Graham would do now what he did then, knowing where mainline Protestantism went after uh, 1957, and where I would argue he should have seen it was going even then. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I I
0: couldn't possibly uh, answer, you know, what sure. uh, uh, he would have done if he would have uh, seen the future. Um, uh, I, all I can say is that at the time, it struck me that uh, he made uh, what I will say uh, a courageous decision and how he, he would uh, comport himself and who he would associate with. Um, it also is the case, though, that I, well, I think two things need to be said there. Um, the first is uh, most historians and certainly most secular historians have not uh, treated the fundamentalist reaction fairly. Uh, because most historians are on the other side of of all such arguments, Um, they can't really grasp the extent to which um, uh, fundamentalists felt betrayed. Yes. Um, And Sidney Alstrom, in another context, a great historian, Sidney Ostrom in another context, quotes someone as saying that uh, they felt the bitterness of disillusioned love. And I think that was the case with uh, uh, people like uh, Bob Jones, uh, it was the bitterness of disillusioned love, and john r rice the same John R. Rice was a great supporter of Graham until new york mm-hmm. um, and so the the, the the depth of the um, uh the break uh came from the depth of the cooperative in us uh, in the beginning uh, but it was decisive and uh, uh you're right uh, they um, uh, they went separate separate ways uh, thereafter. The second thing to say though is that it, it hurt Graham. And uh, he talked about it, and his close associates uh, would say that he was dismayed. I think he was surprised, uh, but he was hurt uh, by this, this rupture. Um, that being said, uh, he he never looked back.
1: You know, he is such a, a mix of the ironic and the very courageous. And uh, yeah. even just watching him and, and looking at some of the newsreels from 1957, it's a mixture of the two, and and you point right. out in your book uh, what many people on the left assumed was a very calculated uh, persona, calculated. Uh, I, I I think you called it uh, at one point kind of North Carolina stage talk. Um, you, you know the the the, the rugged uh, masculinity of his, of his of his look and his appeal, his uh, his 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 speed. You actually document how fast he spoke and uh, yeah. <laughs> and how over time he slowed down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, he's uh, they clocked him at 240 words a minute. Uh, but now that was intentional. This is a good example of how Graham appropriated the trends of the time. Um, he looked at or listened to uh, prominent newscasters, and especially Walter Winchell and H.B. Coltonborn uh who were prominent in the 1940s, and uh, he noted how fast they talked. And he said this wasn't uh, what he would naturally do, but he said, I recognize that these people who won a great audience uh, talked at the speed, and one of the reasons they talked that way is they knew that it would track people. So it was it, that was calculated on his part. Much of what he did was not calculated, but that, that was. Um, a, a second thing that uh, is symptomatic of how Graham thought about um, uh, how how to proclaim his message was um, uh, how he uh, was determined to use short words, um, uh, short paragraphs. He believed that the average American had a working vocabulary of 600 words, and uh, he strove to stay within that framework of very simple words, short paragraphs, uh, communicate with people. All of that preached very fast and dramatically and also loud. Uh, everyone talked about how loud he was, and then and later on, he used to make fun of himself, and he'd say, oh, in those days, I, I was so loud. Uh, <laughs> but that was part of, the, you know, part of the strategy, for
1: sure. Well, at two different places in your book, you cite him, uh, you, you quote him as saying two things that, are, that very much play into this, and one, you quote him from 2003, saying, quote, I have found that if I say the Bible says and God says, I get results. Right. And uh, elsewhere, you pointed out, and uh, I, I don't uh, recall exactly the context in which he said this, but it, it it seems to me it was rather early in his ministry when he said the average American has the theological knowledge of a 12-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he spoke yeah, with just... great simplicity. He, he intentionally yeah. spoke with tremendous simplicity.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's talk first about the Bible. Uh, he was convinced that he uh, spoke with the authority of scripture and i think he understood that uh, it was that the bible held uh, great authority in the culture more than than now uh, but still uh, the bible was by far the best-selling book uh, ever in american history and uh, people had the bible as a, uh, of, a of a still point in a turning world uh, for them so he held the Bible in his left hand as he preached. Uh, he uh, quoted passages uh, with um, great rapidity and, and accuracy. He had a prodigious memory, and uh, sometimes uh, stenographers would uh, would would note that he quoted more than a hundred passages of Scripture in the in the course of a, of a sermon. So he used the Bible uh, both exegetically. Uh, though he was not a deep exegete, but he w- he would use it uh, that way, and then he'd also uh, use it uh, symbolically uh, to uh, uh, emphasize his words. And actually, back in in Los Angeles, I've uh, just recently discovered there was a very large um, a cardboard Bible set up right in front of his pulpit. It was about six feet high and maybe six feet wide, and uh, in other words, a-, a visual symbol of the centrality of Scripture in his preaching.
1: You know, just in terms of the Bible, you deal, especially in the chapter entitled "Preacher," with his own theological convictions and uh, his his convictions as translated into his preaching. Right. And uh, and when it comes to the Bible, you talk about an evangelical shift from inerrancy to infallibility. You you actually say that even as Dr. Graham was was quite resistant uh, to uh, so-called higher criticism of the Bible, critical approaches. Uh, as we would say uh, more contemporaneously uh, uh, concerning the Bible. You you say that, uh, quote, "...there's little evidence that Graham clearly understood, yet alone supported the principles of biblical higher criticism or related critical methods taught in mainline Protestant seminaries and in secular colleges and universities." and yet, it seems to me that the way you present him, he is, he is seeking to affirm the total authority and truthfulness of Scripture, but not to become overly controversial or inserted into specific controversies. Exactly right.
0: Yeah, well, you've got that nailed. Um, I, I think there's several things to say there. Uh, the first is that he was overwhelmingly pragmatic, and sometimes that is taken to be a criticism. Uh, I do not mean it that way, and I think that uh, he, he would accept the word. And he said, absolutely right. He, he said, uh, I have the best product in the world, and so why don't I use the best means available uh, to, um, uh, uh, I don't know if he, I, uh, if he used the word market, but uh, to proclaim it, to herald it. Um, and so he was very self-conscious about preaching in a way that would be effective. Uh, there are lots of you know controversy. Who's the best preacher in America? Okay, uh, and I uh, mean Graham was not the best preacher in America by a long shot. I would argue he was the most effective. And uh, one of the ways that he was so effective is that he insisted that he would not get entangled in debates about the nature of inerrancy or infallibility or or uh, inspiration. Uh, he knew that 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 did not interest. Uh, people in in general, what he wanted to do is proclaim the saving message of the Bible, and, uh, it, and the heart of it—these uh, are my words—but the heart of it is to proclaim a a message of a transforming relationship with Christ or with God that would transform everything else in life.
1: I don't think there's any doubt that uh, that that's accurate. I I would say I I don't think it's quite the whole story, and and it, and it's for this reason. I appreciate the way you said that Dr. Graham decided he wouldn't do this uh, in terms of inserting himself in in these uh, controversies, and uh, and yet I think, like all of us, he didn't do it except when he did. And uh, so, when I was elected president here in 1993, uh, I'm afraid part of the story will be lost. Uh, Dr. Graham actually told me uh, as he was uh, as he was here and uh, as he was speaking at my inauguration. He uh, he told me of uh, of his own experience in coming to an affirmation, and you do recall that uh, in your book of the Authority of Scripture, but he made very clear that uh, he knew that I had come uh, with a specific set of convictions, including the inerrancy of Scripture, and, and he made very clear, using that vocabulary, that that's what he expected uh, and supported when he spoke that night. And then, you know, back in 1984, in the middle of the Southern Baptist controversy over inerrancy, he actually publicly... Uh, intervened by writing a letter to be read at the pastor's conference of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the most crucial deciding points. He did that again in 1987. And uh, so a part of me wonders if this was a change over time that uh, what happened in 84, 87, and in 93 wouldn't have happened uh, in 1957, or for that matter, in 1977. Uh Yeah. Do you think there's anything to that?
0: Well, uh, there's... uh there's lots of room for honest difference of, um, of, of interpretation. of Graham, uh, he said an awful lot. I mean, he uttered millions of words in the course of his life, and uh, and I don't think that at any point he consciously uh, dissimulated. I'm, well, I'm certain he did not consciously do so. Uh, but he, you know, he spoke to different audiences, and uh, and he emphasized different things in, in different contexts, and so he may well have. And I in no way uh, deny that he. He said and did at Southern what you're saying, but I'm saying that um, uh, his legacy is complicated just because he spoke so much and he wrote so much for, uh, for multiple audiences. I mean, it's like John Wesley, uh, for example. Sure. All right. So that's one issue. Uh, a second issue for Graham is that I think that personally he was quite conservative on most issues, but he was not willing to break fellowship on very many. And that's an important mm. distinction. Yes. And as time went on, he became less and less willing to break fellowship uh, with other people. And that was for a variety of reasons, but partly I, I think his own maturing, uh, that he, he just didn't feel uh, that that would uh, uh, serve the gospel purposes. Well, I think um, one, of, one of the issues yep.
1: for me coming into the story when I did mm-hmm. was that I know what I know from my experience with Dr. Graham, uh, w- w- which... Uh, uh, leads me again and again to say how indebted I am to him for his yeah. uh, his friendship and uh, and his support through the years and, uh, and for the continuation of that uh, throughout uh, all the years that I've been here. But I, I also go back, when I, when I was first on the campus of Bob Jones University as a visitor, uh, I, I went in, this would be during the 1980s, I went in the bookstore. Uh, I wasn't wearing, an I'm a Southern Baptist uh, uh, pin on my coat, I can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, I, I went in, and the the, the the two great polemical issues that were clear when you walked on that campus were they were opposed to Southern Baptist and to Billy Graham. Uh-huh, and, that's uh that's funny. And, yeah. and so that was just very much out there, and and tremendous changes come in the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, one of the things you document is that changes come in the uh, in the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as well. But the other thing I just want to document as as we're talking about this. Is is something that you deal with in the, in two of the most important of uh, of your chapters. They're, they're all, I think, uh, uh, incredibly well done. Uh, entrepreneur and architect. Because okay, had Doctor Graham uh, modified the, the influence that he had in some other direction within the evangelical empire and infrastructure, we would have a very different movement than we than we have. So, a part right. of my right. reading of Billy Graham comes through a, a man who was a direct mentor to me, and that's Carl Henry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so when Carl Henry becomes the first content editor, uh, the, 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 the founding uh, uh, visionary for Christianity Today, I mean, Carl Henry believes himself to be very much doing what Billy Graham had intended for Christianity Today to do, but he also saw it, and you document this, as a direct uh, countervoice to the Christian century and to mainline Protestantism. Um, yeah, um, uh, there there are uh, I think multiple motives there,
0: and one is to provide a respectable alternative theological voice. And the key word, a key word, is respectable. Uh, Graham was self conscious that he wanted a theological voice that won the respect of uh, the uh, broader public. And he felt that until then, uh, uh, conservatives had, uh, had resided out on the margins and that there were sophisticated voices within uh, the movement, but they did not have a public airing. And so that was, I think, the key uh, uh, motive um, behind the founding of Christianity today. Uh, but another motive, um, and one that's received uh, last notice, is that Graham wanted to create a magazine that would galvanize uh, the movement. Uh, the movement was Sisyphus. There were just all kinds of fragments out there, and they weren't working together. And he thought if there was a, uh, a central voice, uh, that, that that could uh, bring uh, coherence to the movement. And that, I think, is one of his great contributions. Uh, that he, he brought evangelicalism into the mainstream of, uh, of American religious life. Uh, if I could continue there for, ju- for just a second. Uh, one, uh, one of my graduate students had this insight. He said, uh, after Graham, uh, it was necessary in uh, a- any kind of a public forum about American religious life Uh, It was necessary to have a mainline speaker and uh, and a Jewish speaker and a Roman Catholic speaker and an evangelical speaker. And not until Graham
1: did evangelicals have that uh, place in in the public uh, discussion. Going back to to how you trace his influence within the evangelical movement, uh, just doing some research on my own recently on uh on some of these uh institutional questions it becomes apparent to me that if you take billy graham the man out of so many of these stories you actually don't end up with the story you you it, it, <laughs> whether right. it's fuller yeah. theological seminary or or uh, uh gordon conwell theological seminary or uh or christianity today or or any number of other uh or the Lausanne conference or world evangelism that, that it, without billy graham those things don't happen at least they don't happen the way they happen
0: yeah that's exactly right um he uh, uh, he was uh, not, uh, um, not not simply involved in the actual organization of many of these um, you know, developments, um, but he, uh, he, he, his um, his approval uh, his, uh, legitimated uh, them, and so his influence was, was it sounds ironic, uh, but his influence was uh, was greater than than what he himself did. Uh, there were ripples. Uh, Maybe is what I'm trying to say. Uh, He was symbolic, and he was symbolic of the uh, importance of bringing evangelicalism into the mainstream to uh, bring give it coherence, uh, measure of unity, um, and uh, respectability. As I I quote uh, Sam Hill, who is a major historian of the South and sure. uh, uh, Sam said this with a, uh, a wink, but there's a lot of truth to it. He, he said uh, Billy Graham taught evangelicals when to wear a necktie. Uh, now that's an overstatement of course, because they were wearing neckties and you know in lots of places, but he taught it. them yeah. how to get involved in the public
1: discussion and not alienate people. Given the fact that Billy Graham is such a towering figure in American evangelicalism, and for that matter, in American culture, especially in the 20th century, it's very difficult to get the measure of the man from any kind of contemporary distance. One of the features we see in terms of books about Billy Graham is that they tend to be looking at one aspect or another. One of the great advantages, one of the strengths of Grant Wacker's new book, America's Pastor, is that in successive chapters, he looks at all of these dimensions of Billy Graham's life and work. He deals very specifically with the theological issues and the theological development of Billy Graham and his ministry. He looks at Billy Graham as the architect and engineer of an entire movement. He looks at Billy Graham as the symbol of an American century. He also looks at Billy Graham's relationship with the press, Billy Graham in terms of his relationship with presidents. All that leads to just more interesting conversation to come, and one of the reasons why America's Pastor is such an important book. Now, there's a portion, uh, a dimension of Billy Graham's life to which I think the secular world would want to turn first and, uh, and, and would find most interesting. Uh, it is interesting. I just don't think it's the most important part of the story. But you deal with it very directly in your chapter in which you talk about pastor and also when you talk about pilgrim. I mean, you, you are talking about a man who had direct friendships, probably with more United States presidents than any other nonpartisan, nonpolitical figure. Right. And, and many of those had had a material impact on the history of the nation. Right. Uh,
0: the secular historical community is overwhelmingly interested in Graham as a, uh, a political figure or as a player in the political scene. And uh, he did not see himself that way. Uh, there's no way for me to... Uh, calculate this, but my guess is that probably uh, 80%, 90% of the words he ever uttered or wrote uh, pertain to evangelism. Now, having said that, he was drawn into politics. He admitted it, that it was like a moth drawn into the flame. He said if he hadn't been a preacher, he would have been a politician. So it was always there. And I don't want to say that historians have fabricated it. It's a strain that was there, but in his own mind, it was definitely a substream, and I would firm that uh, it was a comparatively uh, minor theme um, in his life. Uh, but he did have uh, these extraordinary relationships with presidents. He was pre- friends with ten presidents in a row. Uh, he knew Harry Truman. They were not friends. Uh, Graham himself bungled an early meeting with Truman. Truman never forgave him. Um, but he was friends with every other president, and uh, you could add Barack Obama uh, there. He, of course, didn't know uh, President Obama personally in a uh, significant way, although President Obama uh, visited in his home. But but for all practical purposes, we could say that he was friends with ten presidents in a row. He was very close to four of them, um, close to Lyndon Johnson and to Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and to the senior Bush. Uh, in fact, I even have hazarded the judgment that, uh, except for his immediate associates, probably the closest friend he ever had in his life was uh, Lyndon Johnson.
1: So I, I can just affirm name. that uh, yeah, yeah. In, in my last conversation with him, uh, the two people we talked about more than any other because he wanted to talk about them were Lyndon Johnson and Mordecai Hamm. Really? And, uh, How yes. interesting. Well, and, my and goodness. Mordecai Hamm, because I had once lived across from where he lived, here in None Louisville. Quite controversial, oh, okay. by the yeah, way. Uh-huh. He, he lived yeah. in a very expensive home in the aftermath of the Great Depression that became very controversial here in this city. Oh, wow. And, uh, I don't know
0: that much about him Yeah, well, thank w- you.
1: well, I think most of us talk about him only because he was preaching when Billy Graham uh, documents his conversion. I think, otherwise, no one would be talking about Mordecai Ham.
0: But it was just <laughs> very
1: interesting that he goes back to when he was a 16-year-old boy and, and brought up stories, and then about Lyndon Johnson, yeah. uh, about whom he spoke with great warmth uh, yeah. in, in your book, you ask two questions. I'm having to summarize here. You ask the question, what, what did Billy Graham gain from those uh, friendships and relationships with presidents? But you also uh, document, uh, oh, not only presidents, but uh, but candidates uh, who are running for the presidency, especially yeah, right. in 1960. But then you ask the question, what did they get from Billy Graham? And and I, I would appreciate you addressing both of those questions you address in your book. Uh, the first one
0: is uh, friendship. Um uh, And again, many historians uh, try to probe uh, deep political motives, and that's not the way Graham thought. Um, What he got out of the friendships was friendships. It was uh, primarily a pastoral relationship. And I don't want to overstate that. I mean, there was a lot of schmoozing and uh, just uh, palling around. Uh, He played golf uh, with all the presidents until the 80s. He played golf with Richard Nixon more than 100 times. So he had a lot of fun. Uh, He went sailing with George Bush. Uh, But there is not much reason to think that uh, that those relationships were very political. Um, And, again, the presidents asked him very serious uh, personal theological questions. Um, You know, what's going to happen to me when I die? Uh, These are the questions that the presidents brought to him. Now, what they got in return, uh, not to be uh, cynical about it, but uh, just uh, analytical, is the legitimation. Um, They knew that if they were seen with Billy Graham in public, that that would win the confidence of millions of people. Now, I think also, Al, that uh, many of the presidents enjoyed his friendship as well, especially Johnson and the senior Bush. They really did enjoy each other, Um, but uh, they also knew uh, what his
1: friendship would do uh, for them uh, politically. Yeah, one of the most interesting stories you document in the book is uh, Dr. Graham's role in the 1960 presidential election, Uh, the article that he wrote that almost was published endorsing Nixon, and, uh, and, and then his very, I would say, angular relationship with John F. Kennedy during and after the election. Right, right, uh there's no question that uh Graham was entangled with Nixon,
0: and uh that is the uh, most serious mistake of his life, and he himself repeatedly said so, uh especially after nineteen seventy four after Watergate, he urged other evangelists to avoid partisan politics. Uh, And he would say, as I did not. He looked at himself as an example of how you can get entangled and brought down. Now, I do not mean that there was any kind of moral compromise, but what I do mean is that uh, Graham violated his own principle of keeping partisan politics out of the pulpit. Uh, He was just sucked in, and he was sucked in by Nixon uh, in a lot of ways, but, I mean, after all, the whole nation was. Uh, you think about it in the election of 1972, Nixon won that election by a greater majority than any other person in the history of presidential elections.
1: Well, he lost one state in the District of Columbia. That says something. Mm, yep, that's it. Uh, I, I was there. I was in Massachusetts in those days, and
0: I know and, uh But that was, you know, that was a totality of what Nick of what uh, uh, McGovern won. So Graham allowed himself. To be dragged down into the mud by Nixon, and that's one of the great puzzles. why uh, I'd say I Graham was, was an astute reader of people usually, but in this one case, uh, there was a, a kind of a blind spot, but he repented of it, and that's where he's different from you know many, many le- Christian leaders. He saw the mistake and repented and urged
1: others to, uh, to avoid um, that path. Well, he also has the amazing uh, gift of an incredible longevity during one of the most crucial periods of of world history. I mean, he he yeah, yeah. He, uh, he really comes to adulthood uh, in in the period uh, very much marked uh, by the build up to the Second World War, and then that war, and, and then he's shaped by the Cold War. And, and one of the things that's in the background of your book, not in the foreground, is that the Cold War, I would argue, provided a kind of American unity. That even is pictured in that 1957 crusade right. in New York City, yeah. a, a, a unity uh, that was bipartisan, by the way, looking at the fact that, you know, most younger Americans would be shocked to know that it was the Democratic candidate in 1960 who was the colder, cold warrior than the Republican candidate in 1960. That's right. That's right. Claiming a missile gap and yeah. all the rest. And and so sure. it's, it's he's a. Every man, I'm sure every single one of us, every individual, has a context that's explicable only by history. But when you look at Billy Graham, that, the, the ten decades of his life just span such interesting times.
0: Well, two points there. One is that his longevity counts a great deal. He, he's he been uh, front and center for uh, about six decades. And, uh, and I, uh, of course, in that book uh, compare him, uh, his influence with Martin Luther King, with John Paul II— uh, they were influential in other ways, but neither of them had the public visibility that Graham did for so long, uh, year after year. And what's important about that, too, is uh, his um, resilience in the uh, public eye. It wasn't like he rose and fell, but rather That's right. he has remained on the Gallup poll for, I think it's now 55 consecutive years as uh, the most, one of the most ad, uh, ten most admired men um, in America. Uh, that it, well, it's the poll of most admired men in the world, but the poll is taken in the United States. Uh, so longevity in the public eye is uh, one of the uh, you know, crucial features of of his success. Yes,
1: I want to ask you another question. Just stepping back, I'm very indebted to your work on Pentecostalism and uh, and and now your work on Billy Graham. So many other dimensions. The uh, evangelical historical world, or the world of evangelical historians and biographers, and uh, and and frankly, those who are thinking about the movement and its history, there's been a pretty active debate now going on for at least 15 or 20 years on how that history should be undertaken, and uh, famously a debate in print, so to speak, between Ian Murray on the one hand and Harry Stout uh, on the other. Uh, You mentioned Mark Knoll earlier. Uh, And and, and just in terms of how you wrote this book, how do you believe history should be done when, uh, when we're dealing with the intersection of very deep theological beliefs and uh, the critical discipline of history?
0: hmm um, Well, I'd love to talk about this <laughs> for a long time, but um, uh, because it touches me deeply. Uh, I'm nearing retirement, and I uh, define myself as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, uh, but I'm also a critical historian. And uh, putting these two together is, is, uh, is a challenge, but it's also very exciting. Um, And it seems to me that uh, what Christian historians, uh, such as myself, uh, usually do uh, is ask the kinds of questions of the past that are important to Christian faith. Uh, But at the same time, the answers that we come up with must be persuasive uh, to anyone. And uh, secular readers uh, need to read it and say, that's credible, that makes sense. So in other words, Al, I, I do not think that we can have a private uh, justifications, private warrants, and say, well, this is true because I prayed about it. We have to have evidence that makes it persuasive. And it's not always easy to do that, uh, but in general, um, I mean, that's the goal, to ask the kinds of questions and exhibit the kinds of sympathies that I think Christians should, but what we generate as our answers uh, should make sense uh, to the entire world. Uh, to the entire world,
1: yeah well, I really think you've achieved that in this book, and that's made me look forward to the conversation but if if I could speak as uh, as someone reading uh over your shoulder in one sense okay. uh, looking at this book, it seems to me that one thing that might have changed in that conversation over the last decade or so is illustrated by your book and a couple of others to which I would point as well, in which uh there, There is a, a, a shift towards doing what you did in your prologue in stating your own convictions and kind of placing yourself in the story and then doing your very best uh, to tell the story well, but also to demonstrate a sympathy, not just for the central subject, but uh, a sympathy of motivation and of understanding, which I think you extend to just about everyone uh, that is included in your book. And and I I think... If I were not an evangelical, I'll admit that's a rather difficult thing for me to imagine. But if I could, I think I would see this book as eminently fair.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I tried. I'm going to say, let's take an example uh, like uh, Bob Jones, Bob Jones Sr. I think he was wrong theologically, but I try to uh, understand uh, the hurt that he felt and try to understand how much that he felt that uh, uh, Billy Graham had failed him and, and why he felt that. Uh, so uh, this is what we, I think, historians should be trying to do always, is uh, uh, portray people from the inside. Give them uh, the, you know, their best shot, or apply the golden rule uh, to our subjects. Uh, if I may go on for one minute, uh, one of my favorite historians is uh, Richard Bushman, who is a great historian of the Mormon tradition. And uh, Richard says that um, the people we write about, we're going to see someday in heaven. And we'll have to look them in the eye, and we'll have to account for ourselves. And I and I tell that to graduate students as a as a kind of motto. Uh, we will have to account for ourselves and how we describe people. And it's important to uh, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt whenever you can. Um, now, there's yeah. some times when you know. Uh, and you have people who who behead other people. Then that that's a different
1: story. But in general, that's uh, a different kind of moral clarity. Yeah, yeah let, yeah. let me ask you one final question, if I might, Grant, and, and that is that uh, having done uh, not only the research and the writing of this book, but now having at least an initial round of its critical reception, um, if if I were to ask you as a final question, uh, how do you believe Billy Graham will be placed? Uh, in terms of uh, of the history of the Christian Church, and, uh, and 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 to narrow it down, let's just say the English speaking Church uh, in, in the modern age. What, what do you think the, the 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 telling of that story, the the placement of Billy Graham, is likely to be? Um, well, I've already
0: intimated, and I'll go back to it and say that I I think uh, when historians look at the twentieth century. Uh, They all see uh, Graham and Martin Luther King and John Paul II as the towering figures. And they were all dramatically different. They came from different traditions, and their accomplishments were different. Um, But these are the people that Americans keep looking to. And this is supposedly a secular age. And yet, who are the people that we still look to for moral guidance? Uh, Our eyes go back uh, to these these three. And then within the evangelical world... uh, there's no question that uh, Graham is the tallest tree in the forest, and I think you always will be in retrospect. I don't think there will be another Graham, uh, but historians will look at our era, and they'll see him towering over everyone else. And that's not inevitable. In other words, I mean, you know, we often think that, that Graham's stature was uh, somehow given. It wasn't. I mean, it came into being in, in the early, in the late 40s, and the 1950s, early 50s, Uh, that stature grew, uh, but by, as you're you're talking about, Al, about the New York crusade in 1957, and I think that it was about by 1957 uh, that uh, uh, his uh, reputation soared out of reach from from anyone else.
1: The book is entitled, America's Pastor Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation. Grant Wacker, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you. I,
0: I love talking with you, and you ask great questions, so thank you so much.
1: I really enjoyed this conversation with Grant Wacker. When I read a book, I tend to write in the book. That's one of the things I often say to those who ask about reading. I point out that what we should develop is a library, not a book collection. Now, we might have some rare or antiquarian books in which we wouldn't want to write, but when it comes to a book like this, I read it with pen in hand. And that was a stretch for me when it comes to America's pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation by Grant Wacker, because I wore my pen out even as I was turning page by page. This book presents to me a particular challenge in many ways because I know not only the man who is the subject of the book, but I also know so many who are also detailed in the book, those who were the associates and the friends of Dr. Graham and those who were his critics as well. That puts me in a very interesting position. For one thing, as I stated in my conversation with Grant Wacker, I was born in 1959. A lot of this story precedes me. I came to adulthood in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, a very different time. And at a time when Billy Graham was not only a household name among American evangelicals, but also a time when he loomed over American history and American evangelicalism as something of a character of almost mythic status, given the fact that he dominated that movement like no one else before and like no one else since. So, I have to admit that as I read this book, I learned a great deal about people I knew, but people I came to know at some point along the way of this story. So, I came to know Carl Henry as in so many ways a mentor to me and a dear friend. I came to know many of the associates of Billy Graham, and eventually I came to know Dr. Graham himself. And as I certainly understand, when it comes to, for instance, my grandfathers, I knew them only as older adults. I never knew the younger men that they one day were. In reading Grant Wacker's book on Billy Graham, I came to understand, I think, the younger man that Billy Graham once was, and the younger men that so many others were alongside him, the men and women of the evangelical movement, who shaped that movement in its very earliest decades and had such a formative influence in the decades that followed, they are people who are now passing from the scene. Many of them already have now passed. Names like Harold J. Ockengay and Carl Henry and so many others. Billy Graham is still alive. And even as his public ministry has come to a close, the very fact that he now lives in Montreat, North Carolina, is a sign of the continuity of a movement that is. We need to remember as old as Billy Graham, and really, in terms of American evangelicalism in its contemporary form, no older. The chapters of Grant Wacker's book are entitled Preacher, Icon, Southerner, Entrepreneur, Architect, Pilgrim, Pastor, and Patriarch. It's really hard to imagine eight words that might better encapsulate Billy Graham's ministry than those eight words. But of course, even as with every one of those words, Grant Wacker is seeking to look at a different dimension of Billy Graham's life and work in ministry, his place in the culture and his influence in the larger evangelical movement. The reality is that there's a great deal of bleed over in terms of those eight words and what Grant Wacker means to encapsulate by his use of them. As I said in my conversation with Grant Wacker, I think one of the great achievements of his book is the kind of scholarly sympathy that he extends to virtually everyone who is considered within the book, starting, of course, with Billy Graham, but extending to others, not only his friends, but including also his critics. And over the years, it is interesting to note how this conversation has changed. There are so many issues I wish we'd had time to address, so many theological issues that are simply essential to the story of Billy Graham, so many historical intersection points, so many personalities and personages that belong in a part of this story, and are found in the main in Grant Wacker's book. But in a single conversation, I am amazed how much we were able to discuss, how many different dimensions of Billy Graham's life and work in ministry we were able to consider. I really do commend the book. I believe that this book, more than any other yet written about Billy Graham, gets at Billy Graham the man, gets at Billy Graham's message, gets at his meaning in terms of the evangelical movement, and also deals with his motivations in a way ...that I think has not yet been achieved in any other volume. There are difficult issues that are addressed in the book... ...difficult issues to discuss when looking at the 20th century... ...difficult issues to discuss when looking at the life and at the words of Billy Graham. But we also have to recognize, just as I said, that it is Billy Graham himself... ...who I firmly believe would want the story told in a way that is true to the facts... ...and true to the unfolding knowledge of the story... It is Billy Graham, I believe, with full confidence, who would want us to have this discussion looking at what we, as contemporary evangelicals living in the first decades of the 20th century, should learn from his life and work. In conclusion, I will venture forth these judgments. Grant Wacker said that there will be no other Billy Graham. It's interesting that that was one of the big questions people were asking in the evangelical world in the 1980s and the 90s and perhaps even into the early years of the 21st century. No one's asking that question anymore. I think the reason for that is quite profound and simple. The world has changed such that it is not now imaginable that American evangelicals could ever occupy a position in the center of this culture as was represented by Billy Graham. Billy Graham's singular influence that placed him in the center of American life, American public life, not just American Christian or American evangelical life, that is an unprecedented development that is now virtually unimaginable. In our contemporary era, we're looking at a situation in which evangelicals are increasingly going to stand out from the culture as a counterculture. Not so much by choice, not that really at all, but rather by the force of circumstances and the tremendous shift in terms of the worldview and the moral judgment of the world around us. The Christian gospel, according to the scripture, has always been foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. But during those crucial decades of the 20th century, In the cultural context of the Cold War and in America's attempt to try to come into some form of the modern age, there was a moment when American evangelicals did occupy something far closer to the center of American public life. There was a moment when Billy Graham was not only possible, but actual in terms of the influence of a singular individual in that American moment. We can look back now and say that that moment also produced some unique temptations— And Grant Wacker deals with those as well. The temptations of being just a bit too close to power without recognizing that the Christian gospel is sometimes undermined in terms of its preaching by that very proximity to power. And when it comes to the theological inclusiveness that marked at least some of the early decades of Dr. Graham's ministry— it is now even more clear that American Protestantism was moving in two very different and eventually contradictory directions. One towards an explicit accommodation with modernity, the course of Protestant liberalism, and the other in the direction of a very countercultural stance made necessary by the theological convictions that are essential and central to what it means to be a Christian, and in particular what it means to be known and self-identified as an evangelical. In that sense, looking with full sympathy at the decisions that were made by Billy Graham then, we can understand that we face no opportunity of having such illusions now. We come to understand that the theological options that present us in the early decades of the 21st century are not between an establishment Protestantism that still retains some form of allegiance to historic Christian doctrine and to a more conservative variant that is more theologically precise, we are now looking at two movements that are separated by a great theological chasm. And it is now not possible to look at the situation as Billy Graham confronted it in the 1950s and believe that in any way it now represents what we know to be the theological options in the 21st century. I know from firsthand knowledge that many of those who were the conservative critics of Dr. Graham's ministry during its public years That many of those critics were motivated by a very sincere theological assessment that forced them to create distance between themselves and Dr. Graham. Over time, many of those concerns were substantiated, certainly by the leftward trajectory of mainline Protestantism. But many of those conservative critics also had underlying that distance that was created between themselves a basic gladness in the fact that Billy Graham was preaching the gospel, and they were glad to hear the gospel preached, and they were glad to see so many people respond to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. On the left, there were those who were very severe critics, but even as many of those mellowed over the years, they mellowed because of the personal integrity of Billy Graham and the understanding of the fact that in his role in American culture— not only is he indispensable to the story of American evangelicalism, he's indispensable to the story of many other developments in American culture. Given all that Billy Graham represents, it is far easier to start a conversation about him and his place in history than to end it. But end it we must. Once again, I want to commend Grant Wacker's excellent new book, America's Pastor, Billy Graham, and the Shaping of a Nation. I deeply appreciate him joining me for Thinking in Public today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mowler.